Gosh, there's a lot of you. <laughs> okay, well, it's, uh, it's very nice to be standing here uh, once again. I did it, well, the last time, well, I wasn't really stood here, was I? was at my welcoming uh, a couple of months ago. Um, and, yeah, there was a lot of people there then too, so it's lovely to see uh, a good, good crowd of you. And happy Sangha Day to you all. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's been. It's, I suppose we're getting to the end of quite a quite a week, really. We've had uh, the urban retreat this week, as uh, Diane Andy said, and the focus of the urban retreat has been meta, which has been very appropriate for the run up to Sangha Day. And then had a lovely evening last night. A, a very wonderful, amazing surprise with the amount of money that was raised at the uh, at the uh, the auction. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, I was completely gobsmacked, to be honest. Uh, that so much money could be... I didn't realise so many people had so much money, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> now that I know that... Uh, so, uh, uh, no, no, that's not true. Um, OK, so this, this talk started out uh, with the provisional title, which was, uh, What is the Secret of Sangha? And it was, a, it was initially a, a provisional title, because I remember Bante saying something like, if you put secret in a title, you get loads of people to attend, or some, <laughs> some, 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 <laughs> something like that. And it works, yeah, it's magic. Um, yeah, so it was a sort of provisional title, and then, you know, I, I didn't think about it for a while, and then I did start thinking about it, and then it was too late to change it. And, uh, but then I thought, actually, it's fine, it's fine. This, the, what is the secret of Sangha is absolutely fine as a title. I think maybe I'll just tweak it a little bit and say, what are the secrets of Sangha, rather than what is the secret of Sangha? It puts a bit too much pressure on one thing, if I say secret. Uh, and I stayed with it mainly because it's, it's an issue which is very close to my heart. It's sort of, uh, Sangha is very close to my heart, and um, I really want to see this Sangha, in particular, the Manchester Sangha, as well as the wider Tri Ratna Sangha and the Buddhist Sangha, even more widely than that, uh, be successful and to grow. Um, that's, what, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm standing here. Um, I want this Sangha to grow, and I want it to deepen, actually. I don't just want it to grow. I want it to deepen as well as grow, uh, very importantly so. Okay, so I said, what are the, secret, what are the secrets of Sangha? Well, it's in, I say the secrets. It's important to know what are the factors that contribute to the deepening and the growth of the Sangha. Now, I think some of those factors are probably fairly obvious. And in, today, in a way, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time talking on the more, about the more, obvious uh, the more obvious factors. I want to focus a little bit more on the less obvious factors. Well, the factors which I think are a little less obvious, but you, you may think are obvious, but you can let me know later. And I think some of those less obvious factors could be secrets. Um, and I say secrets because not everybody does necessarily know what they are. Some of us do, some of us don't. And I don't want any secrets uh, as a chairman. I think it's good to be fairly transparent, if not completely. And I want to expose whatever secrets there are that are, maybe sort of do need to be exposed, which may help um, bring Sangha about or, or strengthen Sangha. But before I start all that, and it's all going to be a little bit less personal. I'd like to start with something a little bit more personal, just to give you an opportunity to get to know me a little bit, uh, just for a couple of minutes or so. Uh, and this relates to, I'm going to tell you something that relates to my own sort of journey towards my, well, my own um, developing experience of Sangha. Uh, when I was um, 
17, um, I was thinking about going to art college. I wasn't, I was doing A-level art at the time. And um, I I remember drawing, I say I remember drawing, I still got it actually. It wasn't a drawing, it was a, it was a watercolour painting about this big. And it was a sense of, I had this sense of I wanted to, I wasn't very satisfied with um, with what I saw as my opportunities at that time, but my, you know, how my life was going to pan out. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't that I was unhappy because actually the conditions that I, I was in at that point in my life were very, very good. I had a very supportive family. Um, there was no problems. Uh, there was no money issues. I was doing well at school, all that sort of stuff. But I did have this sense of actually there's got to be more to life than this. Uh, there has got to be more to life than this. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, I painted this little painting about this big, which is actually in my bedroom now. It's, it's, it's on the wall within a, in a sort of collage thing that I made. Um, and it's of this naked bloke, okay, standing on a rock in the sea like that. And he's sort of looking up, saying, oh, God, there's got to be more than this, right? And sort of a sort of cloudy sky, sort of rough sea. And it was that sense of there's just got to be more to this. You know, there's got to be something that I'm not aware of that is going to make my life more interesting and, um, um, yeah, just, just more meaningful, actually, than, than what I was experiencing at the time. So I did this little painting, and uh, I'm a little bit surprised that I've still got it, sort of 30-odd years later. It's, you know, I've got it, and it's up on my wall, sort of in this collage construction thing that I have in my bedroom. And then last year, as Diane Andy said, I was at Gukiloka. So um, I was at this men's retreat centre, which is in quite a remote part of, I'll say it's remote, it's, it feels remote, uh, part of Spain. Not many people live around there. And I'd been doing quite a lot of painting and drawing, and I, it was get, I, was, um, I did a little solitary retreat, actually, whilst I was there as well. And I was, I was at the end of my solitary retreat, and I, I was frustrated with myself. And I wanted to scribble something down. I wanted to draw something very, very quickly. And I thought, I want to paint or draw a response to that picture that I made when I was 17 because my situation has changed so much. And I want to somehow represent what is my feeling now. Well, how do I feel now? So what I did is, I, it's here and I'll show you in a moment, sort of, uh, again I drew this solitary figure and this time he was on the beach and um, he's, um, he was naked but he's looking, out, he's looking out to sea so you're getting a, a back view. I'm going, very nice bottom. <laughs> anyway, so his, his arms are out like that but he's facing a setting sun, okay, and uh, my, my, my visualisation practice is Amitabha, this figure here, and he's often, sometimes you can substitute that figure for a setting sun. Um, and he's often represented with a setting sun behind him. And it was this sense of actually, I found something meaningful. And that's it, the, the setting sun. That's what's most, in a way, Amitabha, what he represents is what's most meaningful to me. And actually, I found it, you know, sort of, um, you know, I'm not that figure on the rock in the middle of the sea, sort of stranded you know, with crashing waves and a, and a moody sky. Anyway, I did draw it very quickly, but then I, I drew it flat, and there's a problem, I don't know if any of you draw, there's sometimes there's a problem drawing things flat because you don't really get the perspective right because you're working at an angle. Anyway, I, I lifted it up, and this guy had massive arms, okay? He looked like an orangutan, okay? <laughs> I sort of, and uh, <laughs> I thought, no, that doesn't work, okay? But I didn't, I didn't have an eraser. I didn't have anything to rub it out with. So what I did is I started drawing figures in around the figure. 
so this was what I ended up with. Um, so this is this is the picture I um, I drew in my bedroom in my in my solitary hut. Okay, so so there you go. So it's sort of it's a group of figures. It's a group of figures on the beach in silhouette. All of them are facing the sun. And what, hap- what actually happened is, I, I mean, his arms were coming out here somewhere. So in reality, his arms are actually around those figures, you know, although you can't see it because I've blacked out the figures. And in some way, I, I, once I'd drawn that picture, it's, it's just coloured pencils, Inktel pencils, actually, with Ola Kasanya gave me. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> it just felt right. It felt right. The picture I'd drawn initially that guy with the orangutan arms on his own on the beach, wasn't right. But this just... I know it's not, it's not a Picasso or a Rembrandt, but in terms of meaning, it just felt right. It's sort of... And the fact that actually they're silhouetted and they're not, they're not um, individualists, they're actually in it together on the beach, looking at, facing, all together, what is most important in, in their life. And for me, in a, in a nutshell... That's what Sangha is. That's what Sangha is about. And that's, in a way, that's what this talk is about. It's about how do, we, how do we cultivate that? How do we create that? And how do we deepen that? So actually we have that, that sort of experience of being together with those you feel closest to on the beach, looking at something you find really beautiful and actually is, is representative of reality. So that's what this, this talk is about. So I'd like to start in good Sri Ratna tradition by, or Bhante's tradition of trying to define my terms. So I'm going to start with um, looking at what is a secret. Well, a secret can either be, I should say, you know, a secret can either be a noun or an adjective. <clears throat> and the way I've used it in the title, The Secrets of Sangha, is as a noun. I was tempted to use it as a, an adjective and changing the title. Of, I was playing around with the idea. It didn't happen because enough time anyway. I, was, I missed the deadline. And titling the talk, The Secret Sangha. And in some respects, I think that sounds like a much sexier talk than the one you're, <laughs> you're going to get. Because wouldn't we, wouldn't we all like to know what The Secret Sangha is? Yeah? Who is a member of The Secret Sangha? Where is it? What does it do? Yeah? How do I get in it? Okay. Unfortunately, you're not going to get that talk today. Um, you're going to get the other talk, which is the secrets of Sangha. But hopefully, if we establish what the secrets of Sangha are, it may just open the door to the secret Sangha. So what exactly is a secret? Well, apparently it's for, it originates from, a 14th cent- from the 14th century, from Latin, from secretus, meaning concealed. And the Collins Dictionary gives you know, various, various definitions of it. Uh, I've listed four here. It says, a secret's something kept or to be kept hidden. It's something unrevealed, a mystery, an underlying explanation, a reason that isn't apparent, or a method or plan known only to those who are initiated. So already, just looking at the, the definition, we can deduce that there are indeed secrets of Sangha, and, and, if, and if indeed there are secrets of Sangha, then by their very nature they have unusual, possibly magical qualities that aren't easily grasped. They're difficult to see. They're more than likely something to be learned by passing through the fire of experience rather than 
being analysed and understood by the steely scientific intellect, which is how I usually like to do things. So that's, that's what a secret is. So what about Sangha? Sangha actually just says, the word Sangha means association or society, and I'm just quoting him here. For Buddhists, the Sangha, in its broadest sense, is the ideal of spiritual community. The fellowship of those who follow basically the same path towards ultimately the same goal. It may come as a surprise that the spiritual community should be regarded as being so very important, as important, indeed, as the ideal of Buddhahood itself, and as the Buddha's t- and, uh, and also as important as the Buddha's teaching. But from the very beginning, the Buddha very clearly regarded the Sangha as being of supreme importance. So what we're talking about here is not just about us being a group of people who are going for refuge. We're talking about something which is of supreme importance. Okay, so I'm to speak on the secrets of Sangha, secrets that lead to the development and, and increasing depth and general health of the Sangha. Then I think it might be useful for us all to have a shared idea of what a, a deep and healthy Sangha might look like. And I'm going to describe um, three methods for doing this. Um, So I'd like you just to connect up what I'm saying with your personal experience of Sangha in Manchester. And if you want to give me some feedback at some point on where you feel it resonates or where it doesn't, I'd be very happy to receive that. Because as I say, my role here is to, well, to a great extent, is is to deepen and develop uh, the health of the, of the Sangha. So I am genuinely interested in what you think. Okay, so the, perhaps the most popular criteria for determining a healthy Sangha are the four Sangravastus, or the elements of conversion, which, perhaps not coincidentally, are also the same as the four ways of serving friendship, or the first four ways of serving friendship as a fifth way. So the four, those Sangravastus, the, four, the first four ways of serving friendship are Generosity or sharing what we have with our friends, kindly speech with our, towards our friends, looking after our, our friends' spiritual welfare, and treating our friends as we treat ourselves. So we can think to ourselves, just, you know, as a Sangha, to what extent are we doing that? The fifth, just out of, excuse me, the fifth um, uh, factor in the service of friendship is keeping promises to our friends, which I think is also important. So the Sangravastus is the first way in which we can perhaps gauge, get a sense of how, how healthy is this Sangha. The second means of gauging the depth and health of the Sangha is with reference to the threefold way. I've said I don't think this is a traditional way of gauging the health of a Sangha. It's just something which, as I was re- reading around the subject, I thought, actually... This looks like a possibility, something that actually, for me, actually works. So the threefold way, if you like, is a, a truncated version of the Eightfold Path. Uh, and it comprises, you know, three elements, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And we can consider those stages or these elements in relation to the Sangha. We can ask ourselves, to what extent is this an ethical Sangha? To what extent is this a meditating Sangha? And to what extent is this a wise Sangha? 
So, in terms of an ethical sangha, to what extent do we abstain from the, negative, the five negative precepts? And to what extent do we cultivate the five positive precepts collectively as a sangha? Are we being kind to each other? Are we being generous to each other? Is there, is there a sense of stillness, simplicity and contentment in this sangha? Are we speaking truthfully to each other? And to what extent? And are we... Are we um, what's the last one? <laughs> Pardon? Thank you, mindfulness, yes. Uh, just, just checking. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, are we being mindful? Okay, which is critical, you know. Um, if we're not being a mindful or an aware sangha, then what are we doing, really? But to what degree are we doing that? Okay, so that's, that's the, you know, are we, are we an ethical sangha? And in a way, I think that needs to be the baseline. If we're not an ethical sangha, then really we're not even at the beginnings of being a sangha at all. So I guess my sense is we are an ethical sangha, but there's always room for development. There's always room for more and going further. To what extent are we a meditating sangha? And what I mean by this, a mutually supportive sangha that regularly practices collectively together. To what extent are we doing that? To what, to, actually, to what extent are we practicing on our own, never mind together? That's the first thing. But then, on the, you know, also, to what extent are we practicing together? Sangharakshita, just to quote him again, says, There is no future for Buddhism without a truly united and committed spiritual community dedicated to practicing together. And when Buddhists do come together in the true spirit of the Sangha, there is then the possibility of inhabiting, for a while at least, the Dharmadhatu, the realm of the Dharma. In this realm, all we do is practice the Dharma. All we do is talk about the Dharma. And when we are still and silent, we enjoy the Dharma in stillness and silence together. The clouds of stress and anxiety that so often hang over mundane life are dispersed, and the fountain of inspiration within our hearts are renewed. And in a way, that's what we're doing here. We're all together today. We are, to some extent, exemplifying that second level, the meditating, the meditating sangha. But wouldn't it be fantastic if we did it more often, if we got together in, in large numbers more often, practiced together more often? And I've written in here, don't forget to plug sangha practice night. Okay? <laughs> so that's Wednesday evening for those of you who don't know. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that's the, that's the meditating sangha. To what extent are we a meditating sangha? And then finally, we've got the wisdom sangha. So this is the highest level of sangha, sangha at its best, comprising people who are changing on the basis of their insights. To what extent are people in this sangha changing on the basis of their insights? That will only be happening if we have a meditating sangha, and behind that, an ethical sangha. So it's the highest level of sangha, but it's certainly the level of sangha which I aspire to, and I think maybe we are. Maybe there is an element of that already. I, 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 there is an element of that. I'm certain people are changing in this sangha, but it's the thing which I think I would really like to see more of. Um, that changing ourselves and changing each other is what the Dharma is about, and if we're not achieving that, then really we're failing. So. I've talked about gauging Sangha on the basis of the Sangha of Astus. 
I've talked about gauging it on the, uh, on the basis of the threefold way. There's one fi- final third method, and it's also, again, uh, an untraditional method uh, or approach that, in a way, looks at the same thing from a different angle. And it's based on Sangharakshita's system of meditation, which some of you will be familiar with and some of you may not be. So Sangharakshita has developed a system of meditation which include, well, has five stages. Uh, used to be four, now it's five. Um, and those stages are stages of integration, stage of positive emotion, stage of spiritual death and spiritual rebirth, and a fifth, slightly different sort of stage, which is just sitting. So we can ask ourselves, to what extent is this Sangha integrated? That's the first stage of the system of meditation, integration. So as an individual, you want to be integrated, but how integrated are we as a Sangha? Are the various aspects and parts of this Sangha working together? Do we all seem to be pulling in the same direction? Is everyone focused on what's most important, which is going for refuge to the three jewels? So those are questions we can ask ourselves again about this Sangha. Then we can ask ourselves, is this a Sangha of positive emotion? Does the Sangha feel safe, positive and friendly? Does everyone feel valued? Are we able to be authentic and congruent with, with the people around us? Is there a pervasive atmosphere of generosity where people want to give freely their money, their time, their confidence, their friendship, and not least, their understanding of the Dharma? To what extent do we have that in the Sangha? Again, it's, a, it's just a question, but it's a way of gauging the health, the depth of what, what's happening here. The third, third stage in Bhante's system is spiritual death. So we could ask ourselves, Is the Sangha, is this Sangha able and willing to let go of habitual, fixed and limited ways of doing things? Just because we've done things a particular way in the past, does that mean we're going to stay doing it that way? Are we willing and able to let go of things which actually we need to let go of? And then there's the stage of spiritual rebirth. Are we as a Sangha continually growing, developing and transforming By transforming, I don't just mean changing shape. I mean transforming into something that is deepening and becoming wiser, becoming closer to and more representative of reality itself. To what extent are we doing that as a Sangha? And again, there's some overlap with um, what I talked about as wisdom Sangha um, in the other approach. And then there's this fifth fifth aspect of uh, Bhante's system called just sitting. And it's not really a stage. Um, it's a sort of. It's more like a backdrop, if you like, to all the other stages. Um, it's, a, it's an ever-present, or ideally, it's an ever-present background factor. Just sitting, we could say, represents the sangha's overall capacity to be open, still, calm, and receptive. So, what extent do we have that of this scent of this sangha? Is that the sort of sangha we are? Is that the backdrop? Is that the background, if you like, the backdrop to what's going on around here? Are we a still, calm, open, receptive sangha? They're just questions, but they're questions which I think there are. Que- there are questions which I think we need to be asking ourselves and continually asking ourselves um, because we need to know where we are as a sangha and be able to gauge 
you know, where we are and how, how far we need to go, what we need to do next in order to move on. So a little earlier I gave Sangrach's description of Sangha, and I think in some ways it's quite, it was quite general, accurate but general. To get, it, to get, a, clo- uh, sorry, to get a, little, a little closer to the secrets of Sangha, I think it might be worth uh, coming a little closer to home. So let's take a brief look at the history of this centre and this Sangha in Manchester. How did it begin and what will determine its future? The Manchester Buddhist Centre as we know it, as we know it now here, in this building on Turner Street, has been here. It's been here for 17 years. But this building, this sangha, if you like, came into being in dependence upon the intentions and the actions of the sangha that was previously based as an ed- quite a beautiful Edwardian house in Chalton. And that sangha came into being in dependence upon the intentions and the actions of the sangha that was based. I think it was at a house in Withington. And that centre came into being in dependence upon the intentions and actions of a sangha that, and I'm not completely sure, but I think it was Rush Home. Um, so, before Longside. we. Sorry? Longside, thank you. And that very first Manchester Buddhist centre in Longside came into being because of the intentions and the actions of Sagramati. As a disciple of Sangharakshita in London in the 1970s, he wanted to take the Dharma somewhere else. So, what he did is. He knew there was a centre in London. I think at the time there was also a centre in, in Glasgow. He stuck a pin in the map of Britain, somewhere between London and Glasgow, and that place happened to be Manchester. <laughs> the Manchester Sangha beca- uh, began because a man had an intention and he stuck a pin in a map. His initial intention and his willingness to act upon it turned out to be highly significant and weighty for many of us in this room. He couldn't know how the consequences of that act would ripple through time and space, or how it would subsequently impact on the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of people. But it did, and it still does. The point I want to draw out and make explicit here is that our Sangha exists because, and only because, there have been and continues to be a conscious will for its existence. So perhaps one secret of Sangha, an important secret of Sangha, is intentionality. We cannot afford to take Sangha for granted. The Sangha will continue to exist if we consistently turn our minds to it. As the Dhammapada so clearly states, what we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday, and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. Just as Sagramati could never have predicted the specific consequences of his actions, we cannot predict the the specific consequences of our own actions. However, as Buddhists, we can have some confidence in the karma nirma. We know from our own experience that 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 ethical intentions generally lead to ethical actions, which in turn lead to happy consequences. Just imagine if right now, Everyone, each of us in this room, had the same intention as that Sagramati had over 30 years ago and the will to follow through on it. What would happen if each of us put a pin in a map and went to that place to expound and spread the Dharma? What would or could be the consequences, consequences for the creation and development of a Sangha in that particular village, town or city, that county, this country, actually this planet? 
Actually, just in case you're wondering, I don't really want any of us to do that. What I'd prefer is, to, if you, is for you to very firmly stick your pin in Manchester. Please don't go anywhere. The law of karma can seem very magical, but in some ways it's amazingly simple and straightforward. Actions, whether they are body, speech or mind, have consequences. As we've already heard, you know, at five o'clock yesterday afternoon, about 40 people turned up for the skills auction that took place in this shrine room. Many people, as, you, as again as we've heard, generally, generously donated for sale all sorts of different skills because they turned their minds to supporting this centre and its activities. Two hours later, about £2,500 had been raised. It didn't happen by accident. It happened because there'd been an intention. And as I say, intentions lead to actions which lead to consequences. Now, in order to explore the secrets of Sangha from a slightly different angle, <coughs> I'd like to engage us in a, a bit of a thought experiment. So I'm going to ask you to indulge me a little. It's a sort of journey that might help us understand something else that is necessary for the existence and the well-being of Sangha. So, as I say, if you would indulge me, what I'd like you to do is close your eyes. I'd like you to bring your awareness to this building. <coughs> this five-storey building that we call the Manchester Buddhist Centre. Now, through your imagination, let's go on a little tour through the building. Let's start down in the basement in the cafe. Bring our mind to the aroma of coffee and delicious food. Imagine the people down there eating lunch, chatting, reading newspapers. Now, moving up to the ground floor, have a look at the reception area, the bookshop, the tea area. Just imagine all the people that pass through that space every week. All the greetings and partings, all the hugs, the conversations and other human exchanges. All the cups of tea, all the shared meals, all the looking at the notice board, the making and the strengthening of friendships. Ascending to the first floor, <coughs> we now arrive at the shrine rooms where we meditate, worship and study. These sacred spaces in the midst of the city where people come to find inspiration, tranquility and peace. What has been felt and experienced in these shrine rooms? How many candles have been lit? How many sticks of incense have been burned? How many breaths have been counted? How much metta has been generated? Then, as we ascend yet further up the building, we have the meeting room and library, the yoga studio, body-wise, clear vision, breathworks, and the centre office, and on the top floor, the guys who live up there. In this building, there is so much life, so much activity, so many hopes and aspirations, so many people trying to release suffering and bring peace in so many different ways, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual. Now, still with your eyes closed, I'd like you to imagine that you've just gone home, you're tired, and you go to bed. Listening to the ticking of a clock, you drift off, into a long, deep sleep. 
The minutes and the hours pass by. Perhaps days pass by. Maybe even weeks or months. You've absolutely no, no idea how long you've been asleep. But eventually you wake up and it's a new day. You wash and dress, have your breakfast, do all the usual things before leaving and making your way to the Buddhist centre once again. Perhaps you're coming to a class or volunteering, or maybe you're meeting a friend. As you walk through town, you realise how unusually quiet it is. As you turn into Turner Street, you're aware that something feels a little awry. Something strange has happened. Something has changed. You ponder this and stroll further down the street. Eventually you cross the road, look up, and realise that what was once the Buddhist centre is now just an empty shell of a burned-out building. The walls are covered in graffiti and plastered with fly posters. The wrought ironwork has gone. The three jewels above the entrance are gone. Most of the filthy windows are either cracked, smashed or boarded up. On the steps, wrapped in an old sleeping bag, sits an old man holding a bottle of wine and staring past you into oblivion. For a moment, you think that you recognise him, but no, it couldn't possibly be so. It looks like the building has been empty and neglected for years. The Buddhist centre has gone. It's as if it had never been there. All that remains are your memories. So keeping your eyes closed and still in your imagination, standing in front of that burned-out building, I'd just like to invite you to notice what is it that you're feeling And just stay with that feeling for a moment. Okay. Now I'd like to... Well, just invite you to let that feeling go. Bring yourself back into the present, back into this room. Here we are, Sangha Day, November the 17th, 2013. One, two, three, awake. (laughs) Okay, so here you are back here. So if you took this thought experiment seriously, and if you value the Buddhist centre, you may well have experienced one of the following emotions, or it may have been something else. But I suggest it may have been one of these, sadness, poignancy, or possibly gratitude. Perhaps you experienced all three, or maybe none. But those three emotions that I've just named are all very closely related (coughs) because they draw our attention to what is precious and valuable in our lives. Sadness is an awareness that we've lost something of value. We feel somehow reduced or diminished by the absence or loss of something from our life. It's as if part of us has gone and what is left in its place is a sense of emptiness but not in a positive way. Sadness is a normal and extremely common human response. Then there's poignancy. Poignancy is the almost paradoxical combination of both sadness and happiness. It's a combination of those two emotions together. It's the synthesis of those two. Whereas with sadness, the focus is is on one's own loss. With, With poignancy, there is more awareness of the transient nature of something that we value, and now that it's gone. (coughs) So it's as if the, the, the focus in poignancy is more on the transience, on the impermanence, than on the absence. Although, although something has gone. 
It's less self it's less self-referential than sadness. <coughs> because poignancy implicitly acknowledges and is resigned to the fact of impermanence, we could say that it's more in tune with the nature of reality. It is, I think, a more complex and a nobler emotion, a much nobler emotion than sadness, at least from a Buddhist perspective. And then finally, there's gratitude, which is explicitly a Buddhist emotion, or uh, katanutta, as it's called. It is, a, as I say, it's a particularly Buddhist quality, and I would argue it's the highest and noblest of these three emotions, because it's fundamentally other-oriented. It's a knowing or recognising what has been done for one's benefit. It's the natural response to generosity, the response to something given or received with an open hand and an open heart. It's completely devoid of any sense of entitlement, craving, grasping or clinging. So you, if you remember, I asked you to question the reason. Oh, sorry, I asked you to, to hold on to the emotion. And just to, you know, just, I just remind you to just connect with that emotion and what it is. And it's absolutely fine if it's sadness, because that's the most common emotion. <laughs> um, now, if we did feel any or all of these emotions, I doubt, I doubt that if we looked deeply, that it was because the physical fabric of this building had fallen into dereliction and, dis- and disrepair. I imagine what we felt, we felt, because we value this building, well, we value what this building symbolises. For many of us, this building is the place where our experience of Sangha has been most tangible. It certainly is for me. It's where we've been taught the Dharma. It's where we've gathered together with our spiritual friends to share our ideals. It's where we studied, practised, and maybe, maybe even to some extent, even realised some of those ideals. If we have any notion or idea of the benefits that we've received from the Sangha, if we really believe that it's served us on our spiritual journey, then we will naturally feel gratitude towards it and want to respond to it. I strongly suspect that this awareness, feeling and expression of gratitude is another secret of Sangha. I have to say, I do witness lots of expressions of gratitude in and around the Sangha in Manchester. Lots of the people here give dana. Some people give substantial financial dana. Others volunteer their time. Every day I see people volunteering on reception, cleaning, doing administration in the office, supporting classes, organising and cooking on retreats, sorting out books for the second-hand stall downstairs, facilitating events and so on, in so many other countless ways. This centre and this sangha could not and would not exist if people did not, ex- did not feel and express their gratitude in such a tang- tangible manner. But I have to say, I still think maybe we don't recognise that actually we do that on the basis of gratitude. And so that is something I want to draw out and actually make more explicit. If we want to explore the secrets of sangha, we're going to have to delve a little deeper still. It might be helpful to go back to a simpler time and place, back to northern India about two and a half thousand years ago, back to the time when the Buddha made his way to the park of the Gosinga Saltry Wood to meet with three of his disciples, Anuruddha, Nandia and Kimbia, who, as we will see, exemplify the ideal of Sangha. So the Buddha says, 
I hope, Anuruddha, that you are living in, a, in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Surely, Venerable Sir, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. But Anuruddha, how do you live? How do you live thus? Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus. It is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me, that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do, and do what these venerable ones wish, wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do, and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. There is so much in this sutta, and I've only read you a small part of it, we could spend days talking about it and exploring it. However, there is one quality that is so obviously highlighted here, and it may not seem like a secret, and that is metta, that's loving-kindness. Over the last several days, metta has been the focus of the urban retreat, both here and at other Tree Ratna centres around the world. I'm not sure that I can add a lot to what's already been said over this last week. <clears throat> However, given that we have several Mitra ceremonies today, um, I do think it's worth saying a little bit about metta here and now, and, now, and more will be said later. Metta, or loving-kindness, is etymologically, etymologically <laughs> related to the word for friend, Maitri, or, or Mitra. And it's also worth noting that the English word friend is etymologically related to the word free. It's not possible to be a friend unless you are free to be a friend. I think it might sometimes be worth asking ourselves if, for whatever reason, we really are free to be a friend. We may want friendship, but are we really free to be a friend? Love and kindness is the principal quality of a friend. And it probably goes without saying that friendship is the glue that binds the Sangha together. But ideally, it has to be a Sangha of free individuals. If there is no spiritual friendship amongst free individuals, then there is no Sangha. For this reason, it is perhaps no surprise that Sangha Akshita has placed... <coughs> a particular emphasis on friendship is one of the distinguishing emphases of the Tree Ratna movement and Buddhist order. This isn't a, tra isn't a traditional emphasis, but neither is it one that was ignored by the Buddha. For example, when, as I'm sure we all know, when Ananda stated to the Buddha that spiritual friendship was half of the spiritual life, the Buddha corrected him by saying, no, Ananda, spiritual friendship is the whole of the spiritual life. Something else that I do want to say and which may seem like a secret of Sangha. Metta isn't. Friendship isn't. <clears throat> but this may seem like a bit of a secret. Is the, me is the need to make time for spiritual friendships and to give them their proper place in our lives. For Sangha to flourish, there needs to be a genuine sense of intimacy. That is the secret, intimacy. There needs to be intimacy with others who are as inspired and as intensely engaged in practices as we are. I do want to say something very briefly about vertical and horizontal friendship. 
because I think there's a little bit of a secret here too. Uh, so we, we encourage friendship in this movement. Um, and I think, of, you know, a lot of the friendship, uh, if, you gain, if, you, if you're a Mitra, you may want to seek friendship with an order member. Um, and it's in the, an order member's interest as well to develop friendship with Mitras. Um, it's in their benefit to be teaching the Dharma, and it's in the, it's, it's in the benefit of the Mitra to receive the Dharma and, and the, uh, hopefully, sometimes exemplification of the order member. And then there's horizontal friendship. So, you know, really encourage everybody to develop friendships with their peers. Um, <clears throat> I mean, most of my peers, when I first came along, in fact, most of my peers are sitting here, sort of, uh, from when I, you know, when I first came along to the Buddhist Centre. Um, Surika was one of my peers, and Artiketu was one of my peers, and maybe a few more around. Um, and we've sort of grown in the order. We grew, we grew as Mitras, and then we joined the order. Uh, we've grown uh, through the Sangha together. But there is one of the, you may think I've covered it all, but I haven't quite, and this is the secret, and this is the secret that actually I want to expose and actually really want to encourage. Just think about however long you've been coming along, particularly if you're a Mitra. What I'd really like to encourage you to do is to make friends with people who are less experienced than yourselves. That's the secret. So it's not about order members making friends with Mitras and Mitras making friends with each other. If you're a Mitra, please make friends with newcomers. Um, if you're a, a Mitra who's about to get ordained, make friends with a Mitra who's just asked for ordination. So allow the verticality to go that way as well. You know, it's about taking responsibility for friendship in all directions. That's another secret. Sure. Nearly finished. I want to draw out one more secret of Sangha from the Kula Gosinga Sutta, which is the Anuruddha Sutta. <clears throat> Anuruddha, talking about himself and his friends, tells the Buddha, We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. What does this mean? What does, why does Anuruddha say this? Anuruddha is alluding to the fact that he and his companions all speak and act with a mind set on the same goal of enlightenment or nirvana. Because they continuously and resolutely share the same skillful focus, they have a natural empathy for one another that enables them to live happily and contentedly together. The depth of their shared focus and aspiration means that any differences that they have in other regards, for example, having different bodies, have paled in insignificance. They are no longer concerned with the superficial differences that most of us use to distinguish and separate ourselves from others. Through the depth of their shared focus and aspiration, they have transcended to a higher dimension of being that has, effectively, taken them beyond the self-other dichotomy. The secret for deepening Sangha here is maintaining clarity, focus and discipline to continue working towards what is most important in our lives. By this I mean a clear and unambiguous focus on going for refuge to the Three Jewels. There are so many distractions in the world today that it's becoming more and more difficult. Perhaps a more succinct way of describing this secret is choice. Know how to make a choice. It is the secret of continually making the skillful choices in a world that is almost always vying for our attention and wanting to distract us at every opportunity.
I want to say one more thing, actually, around this, which is um, we are increasingly a diverse Sangha. And I celebrate that and welcome that. But because of that, I think it's also increasingly important that we relate more deeply on the basis of what we share in common, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the teachings we've received from Bhante, and our shared Sri Ratna practices. It really doesn't matter whether you're young or old, able-bodied or disabled, a man or a woman, black or white, straight or gay, working class, middle class or whatever. It's all fine, so long as there is, there is sufficient intensity of practice and that we are able to connect with each other on that basis. So, in conclusion, what I've done over the well, nearly hour or so is provide a few models to help us determine the depth and the health of our Sangha. I've also tried to expose what I think are the less well-known or less explicitly discussed ways of cultivating and deepening Sangha. Ways that I think we could, perhaps at a stretch, call secrets. They are, just to review, maintaining an ongoing intention to create Sangha. What we collectively turn our minds to, we will become. If we value the Sangha, then it will get stronger. If we don't value the Sangha, it will get weaker. We need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Continually bear in mind how we are benefiting from the Sangha as a way of motivating us to respond to it. Then there's vertical friendship, particularly, I think, from Mitras to, to less experienced people. And then there's cultivating clarity, focus and discipline around what's most important in our lives so that we can get even better at making the choices that help us help each other, help, sorry, that help us and each other change in the direction of enlightenment. Just to finish, I just want to read a quote from Einstein, which is some of, again, it's quite a popular quote, you may have heard it before. A human being is part of the whole called by us, <coughs> excuse me, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be, must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of the nature in its beauty. Thank you.